This episode is sponsored by Factor Meals, America's number one ready-to-eat meal delivery service. Honey, go down to the drugstore, get me a guitar string, and you better wear your coat, girl, because it might rain. You know that rain ain't no good for my guitar string. You are listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guest for episode 205 is Tom Heyman, perhaps best known for his steel guitar work, guesting with artists like Alejandro Escovedo, John Doe, and Sonny Smith. You're hearing him right now play a Waylon Jennings song, Brand New Goodbye Song, from 2008. He started all the way back in the late 80s with Philadelphia's Go To Blazes, where he was not the lead singer and shared songwriting duties with Ted Warren. That band broke up after five albums. In 1997, Tom moved to San Francisco, started releasing solo albums. One of his songs was featured on the TV show Justified. He's now released his sixth album, 24th Street Blues. We talk about the song Desperate from that. Then look back to his 2013 album, That Cool Blue Feeling. We talked about the song Chicken Hawks and Jesus Freaks. Then to the third Go-To Blazes album, Anytime, Anywhere, from 1994, we talked about his song Bloody Sam, and we conclude by listening to Etch-A-Sketch from his 2017 album Show Business Baby. For more information, please see TomHeymanMusic.net. For more about this podcast, see NakedlyExaminedMusic.com. I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a nice rating and review there. And if you really like the show, go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic to support the effort and get an ad-free feed with my episode notes. I will play a little bit of brand new Goodbye Song, a Waylon Jennings cover. We're going to get to the new stuff pretty quickly, but just as a guy in the country space known for your country-style especially the steel playing. I guess if you play steel, it's hard not to sound country style, right? <laughs> there are people out there who are real outliers who are fantastic at other stuff. But yeah, you know, it's traditionally associated with that. So how closely do you see your own writing as nested in that tradition? I think of myself more as a sort of a, becoming more from a sort of a folk or folk rock tradition than a country thing. Although I, you know, I've listened to a lot of country music. I'm a pretty big record nerd and I have a, a pretty broad spectrum of things that I like to listen to. And certainly country music is that. And I'm particularly, I really like stuff from like the late sixties or mid, mid sixties, you know, through the mid seventies is, is like a period that I really like in country music just because the dawn of the singer songwriter age on the country music thing really change things and loosen things up a little bit. You know, like Chris Christopherson's, like the way sure. him and Bob Dylan changed, like it resonated with certain songwriters. It's just made for some really good sounding records. And I also like the like a lot of the lush production from the 70s, where it's, you know, some 70s country records, like bear are as close to like an Al Green record as, as anything else, you know, with sort of that kind of lush production. I'm super into that. Yeah, I mean, overall, like the, the new record, it sounds something in the tradition of, of Bob Dylan, somewhat in his more country phases, maybe, you know, Lay, Lady, Lay or whatever. But certainly the opening track is a much more straightforward folk. What I picked is the second song, Desperate. So the album is 24th Street Blues. And I picked this partially because, well, you had two versions of it on the album. So I got to hear two interpretations of it. But it's also just like a classic 
little pop song. Like, I mean, it's got, yes, it's got the country flavors and it's got the slide guitar, not the steel, right? This is just a, a bottleneck or whatever. But yeah, any thoughts about where you're at with this album and this song in particular before we hear it? It's really interesting. So that song came directly from listening to a reissue of that somebody wrote about on Facebook. I like follow record stuff on, on Facebook and, and people share music. I was a pretty big fan of the songwriter Joe South. I don't know if you know Joe South. Joe, you know, he famously wrote Hush that Deep Purple covered. He also wrote Down in the Boondocks and, uh, you know, a bunch of other songs that were big hits for other people. Uh, Games People Play is a Joe South song. I Never Promised You a Rose Garden is it. So he never had, he had this success as a songwriter and as a sort of a studio guy, but he, he never really had a lot of success himself as an artist. And he had a record, and I can't remember if it's, uh, I think it's called Inside the Mind of Joe South. And there's this song on it called Coming Down All Alone that when I heard it, I just listened to it again and again and again, because it's just like this unbelievable song about coming down all alone, you know, coming down off a, a Coke binge. And it's just a, it's a great song. It's just so raw. And the feel of it just had this feel that's really, really great. And I listened to it a bunch. I came home from work late la- late at night one night uh, from working in a bar. My guitar is sitting on the couch and I picked it up and I just started strumming these chords that had the feel of this Joe South song and Desperate just sort of popped out. So weird, but that's how it happened. There was a time I couldn't stand to be alone I was desperate for something Desperate for something I was so sure I could make it on my own I was desperate for something Desperate for something I could feel it Just beyond my outstretched hand Gets my fingers like the finest grains of sand I can see it in a distant flash of light Then it's gone I'm alone in the night And I never lacked for love as a little child I was desperate for something Desperate for something Turn my back, started running wild. I was desperate for something, desperate for something I could feel it just beyond my outstretched hands. Gets my fingers like the finest grains of sand. I can see it in a distant flash of light. Then it's gone, I'm alone in the night Desperate for something, desperate for something, 
And there's things I did, well I did them Just because I could I was desperate for something Desperate for something There's a diamond trapped inside a grain of sand I can feel it just beyond my outstretched hand I can see it in a distant flash of light Now the only thing before me is Any thought about the instrumentation on this? You know, having it's a very big tambo. Well, you know, I love stuff like tambourines and and hand claps and stuff like that on, on songs. And there's not a whole lot going on in the song. It's you know, it's a couple of acoustic guitars and the bass and the baritone guitar, which I added, and then the slide guitar, you know, which I added. And I think it's a pretty raw. There's this thing about making records where it's like. Get the voice loud and have one loud overdub. And that's the slide guitar. Sure. Well, and adding the baritone guitar, I mean, it allows you to emphasize. So like when you play the A7 the first time, and I'm go- I'll am i talk more about chords on this one because you were nice enough to publish your chord sheets, you know, that, that comes with the album if you buy the electronic version, I guess. It's a physical book and it's going to be merch that's available on my Bandcamp site. Sure. You know, it's a 60 page bound songbook wonderful illustrations and you get to see yeah so i want to say this is really a seventh chord by having the guitar you know walk up that as an arpeggio you know we're going to spell it out for you as opposed to just sloshing through it that was just me trying to figure out what to do with you know how to use the baritone guitar in a way that was it can be sort of heavy-handed and hopefully it's not too heavy-handed on that i just it just felt like it wanted something in that uh, in that realm. And then with it, you know, it's got a little bit of tremolo on it. And it's just like, it's a cool sound. As opposed to the stuff that's just the acoustic that, you know, where you, after every line, couldn't stand to be alone, dun, da, dun, dun, where you're going, you know, one, four, one. You know, that, that makes it a little more subtle th- as opposed to if you had the baritone come in and that and emphasize that, or, you know, it's the same as having the drummer like, wail on that with the simples. I want something to answer in a clear way, the vocal, but you know, this is the beginning of the song. I mean, this happens a lot. You do that little switch back. So it's gotta be, I don't know. Yes. Too over the top to emphasize it any more than just. With yeah. The I mean, and there's not a whole lot going on in the song. There's no middle eight or anything like that. It was just like, you know, I wrote it, you know, it was a verse chorus, verse chorus or a section, B section, a section, B section. And you know, I sat there thinking about it. Like, does this need some other thing? And I was like, Nah, I'm just not going to do it. <laughs> I'd call it laziness or minimalism or whatever. It felt done. Yeah, any thought about, I'll insert the slide guitar riff. In the night. It wasn't planned. It's that thing where I was like, I think I want to put some sort of a thing on this add something to it and i just it's just sort of me playing chord tones Mm -hmm. you know behind it i'm outlining those changes with single notes 
And the first time I did it, I was like, okay, that's a part. Now I have to go back and learn it and put it in every place. I didn't know what I was doing. I fell into a part. And then I was just like, oh, that's a hook. There you go. When I hear that the first time, it's almost like this should be the thing that is saved for the very end of the song. That Which you do it at the end of the song. You do it you know, a couple times at the end of the song. But making this like, no, this is going to be the instrumental break that's between each of these things. It's like a George Harrison quality slide riff. I mean, I made this record up in Portland and I only brought one guitar with me. Me and Rusty Miller flew up and I'll do things that way. I'm not, I know that Mike has guitars in his studio that I can use. So I just had my Martin guitar. That was the only thing that I brought with me. And I just used, it's a Harmony Stratotone, the hollow ones, and it had flat wound strings on it. So the flat wounds just sort of gave the slide a different, just a cooler kind of smoother, glassy feel. You know, I was like, oh, flat wounds, weird. Let's go for it. And it just came out that way. Yeah. I mean, do you do much bottleneck like as a stage thing or that's not that much? I mean, I do with other people. I do. It's when I'm a side guy, I'll, I'll stick a slide on my finger with some frequency. And interestingly enough, you know, I've just been trying to figure out how I'm going to do these songs live with a band. And it was like, I wanted to play that. You know, I could have the other guitar player play that riff, but I kind of come from the John Fogarty method of things where like, I'm going to do it myself because I have an ego about my guitar playing. And so I had to figure out how to play that song and play the line. And I'm not doing it with a slide when I play it live. I'm doing it with a B-bender, a string pull, like, mm. you know, it's a, it's a pedal steel thing, like effect that you have on a regular guitar. So I have a guitar that has a B-bender on it. And I just, I'm just going like this. I'm just playing it like, you know, I'm just, it translates any old way. When you do the bottleneck, I mean, is it, is it generally a totally different EQ that you would want to go for such that it would be hard to, in a given song, switch back and forth between those things? You know, you kind of want to goose your guitar's volume quite a bit so it doesn't sound thin. Yes. When I'm just screwing around recording and let me try one of these, like, no, this is a thin little slimy nothing. I would need to start the sound from scratch with a different amp. You know, and if you're singing and playing, it becomes a, a sort of a tap dance on your pedal board while you're pulling out of a line and trying to step on a boost. And then remember at, at the end of the line to step the boost off. And it's just like a sort of, so doing it with the bender, I can just really dig in with it and it just, it pops. So it's a workaround. Have you done the, uh, keeping the bottleneck on the pinky and then playing the whole song, avoiding your pinky, <laughs> except when you, uh, I could do it. I've done it plenty of times, but it's a little awkward. Ah, uh-huh. so this second verse, I never love as a little child. Then I turned my back running wild, started running wild. So you got your, the whole band name go to blazes and this you know why i keep bringing this country stuff up is because there are certain tropes that go with that and yeah out running wild but then this i never lacked for love as a little child is such a non-country you know of course it has the rhyme but it's not wild child it's not you know it's a enlightened bay area self-psychotherapeutic take on country or something you know you find yourself not to go too far into the genesis of this song sort of stuff it's just, you know, That's what the podcast is go ahead. Yeah, I used to drink and party a lot and stuff like that. And I had a fairly reckless youth, reckless beyond youth sort of thing. I'm just not putting the blame on anybody when I, when I, that line just came out of, you know, it just sort of popped into my head. Like, why was I the way I was? 
this is assuming that the song's about me, not a character that I created. You know, there's always a kernel of you in there and you're accessing that. You know, this is just the way I am or I was or I don't have an explanation for it. Yeah. What is your thought about sort of just truth in songwriting in that? Of course, there should be truth in literature. So it can be a fictional character based on something that you have insight about as long as you're truthful about that as opposed to being autobiographically truthful. I mean, I guess I create a character for a song. Mm -hmm. So it's not me. It's I've created a character, but I can only do that. I totally believe in the unreliable narrator. I mean, I think that's the best sort of song stuff. And, you know, if you go deep enough into sort of creating a character, then it becomes like this thing that you've made. So truth, I don't think songs should be truthful. I think they should be whatever they are. I think it's like lie with impunity in your songs. Just be convincing. You know, that's how I feel about it. So, you know, I'm a little bit of a, a method guy. I write from the heart, sort of, or I try and access some part of my inner whatever that I'm not that in touch with and have that somehow come through in the songs, except when I don't, except when I'm just making shit up. You know, it's just, I don't know how else to say it. Don't be truthful. <laughs> Even when you're capturing something truthful or you know, the fact that you sort of wrap it up in these little stanzas, you're making it picturesque. That's the point. And this one in particular, that it's desperate and you're you know alone in the night and things, but it's such a sweet, the music is the balm. You're not expressing desperate. You're not, this is not Pink Floyd. That's always kind of my thing too, is that I like all sorts of music, but I like things that are melodic and it doesn't necessarily come that easy to me. It's a lot easier to write something in a minor key than it is to write something in a major key. And I'm always trying to access the major key. You can sort of wrap anything around a, an A minor chord, and Lord knows I've done it and continue to do it. But if you wrap something around a major progression that has some borrowed chords in it, it appeals more to me somehow. I referred to it in the, oh, this is actually in the, in the choruses, where so each line has that little 4-1, a plagal cadence. But then the third one does that same rhythm, but um, but but you go to a minor there. Yeah. Gets my fingers like the finest grains of sand. I can see it in a distant flash of light. Then it's gone. I'm alone in the night. But then the fact that you end the fourth line on actually the same minor key, but it sounds like a totally different effect because you had the little turnaround, whereas the end of the chorus is is actually now alone in the night where, you know, like you've actually entered minor key land as opposed to the first time where it's just a little tiny turnaround and then you're back. That's just a songwriting trick. It would be way too hard for me to figure out where I stole that from. <laughs> Some Beatles record. Yeah, the fact that you have that little cadence there you know, it connects the verses and the choruses that you still, even though, you know, so it sounds really consistent, even though you're moving to different chords, that it's still going to have some of the same shapes in it and not that we're moving off into a different place. I don't know. Did you feel like, was that part of the self-contained melodic thing that you couldn't have a middle eight, a bridge that would take you somewhere more over? I mean, I guess maybe that's in lieu of a bridge. So the part is that part's going to be a little bit more the, uh, the minor key more, with the with the slide it's guitar over more it. chord yeah. movement in it, and that's yeah. Somebody I was writing a song with many years ago. You know, it was a very nice kind of wedding song, but then I, you know, as we were sitting there, I threw in this like self loathing so, sort of extended bridge because I felt like I had to measure out the sweet with the salty or something, 
And he just, the guy I was doing was like, no, just take that out. <laughs> like, make it a nice little wedding song. Don't put in how you have underlying rage issues. That's not. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, that is a thing. I mean, I've taken bridges out of songs that were perfectly good bridges. And, you know, I was just sticking them in because that's a conventional wisdom. And like, if you're working with somebody that you trust, they'll be like, nah, get that out of there. It's just, let's just get from point A to point B. And if something needs something, it'll show itself. Hopefully. I don't know. <laughs> I talk about this stuff like I know about it. But anytime I write a song, I'm just always like, did I just do that? Wow. Where did that come from? It's not calculated. It always takes me by surprise. And I, you know, I'm like, how did I do that? And you thought about how you switched up the last chorus. As much as I've been describing this as a self-contained, like it doesn't have a repeating chorus, which would be the ultimate pillow like that it changes up a little bit. And particularly with the last one, instead of I can feel it just be on my outstretched hand, that there's a diamond trapped inside a grain of sand that you're using some of the same rhymes, but it's switched around. It's switched to present tense, right? I can see it. I mean, I think that was just a sort of, you know, I just sat there with it and I was like, okay, to avoid this song, like, you know, it's approaching, like do the same thing again. It's approaching like a Zen cone. It's like, I need to change it. And it's another thing. It's like it's in lieu of a middle eight or something like that. I'll just keep things ever so slightly adjusting. And that's the thing that I'll do is I'll have something that's not quite a chorus. It's like a B section and it'll change ever so slightly every time. And that's just something I do. I don't know. (laughs) Just to mention, so this Redux version that you put at the end. There was a time I couldn't stand to be alone. I was desperate. Something. I was actually expecting, you know, it's the fact that it's slower with all this extra reverb. I was expecting, oh, this is the one where it's actually going to be, you know, you're going to hear the desperation. And there's uh, a little bit of that, but no, you didn't change any of the chords. It's just like a nice piano song instead of a nice. So what happened was this sort of the method for making these records on with Mike Kirkendall is there's the three of us. It's me and Mike and Rusty, and we make the track like then and there. So I'll cut an acoustic guitar with the drums. So Rusty's the drummer, is that? Rusty's the drummer, the bass player, the piano player. Oh, okay. Guitar player. Mike is the same. Those guys are advanced multi-instrumentalists. So that makes it very efficient. There's no guy sitting on a couch waiting to play their part or fix their part or anything like that. Fast moving. So we cut the original version, you know, the one, you know, the... The acoustic guitar and the drums version. We cut the acoustic guitar and the drums. And then uh, I can't remember if Rusty put a bass on it or we were done. And I and I wanted to do the vocals. I was going to do the vocals immediately after. And that's how I would do it. I, I'll usually cut the vocals immediately after the track. So the track is in my mind and the cadence of it is in my mind. So we had acoustic guitar and drums down. And I've got my headphones on and I'm downstairs. The control room is upstairs in this studio. And there's a really great upright piano right next to where the vocals are cut. And I'm sitting at the mic, getting ready to to sing it. And Rusty was just sitting there next to me with the piano. And Mike was upstairs EQing the vocals and getting the, choosing the right mic pre or whatever for the mic. And I heard myself in the cans and it just sounded really, really great. And Rusty just started playing the song on piano and I just started singing along to it. And it sounded so good in my headphones. Like I had, there was like a really good, like reverb in my cans. I was like, this is amazing. And I was just like, let's just do it right now. And so 
Mike just ran the tape and we just did it in one shot. And, you know, since it wasn't for the, we weren't thinking that this was going to be something for the record, we were just doing it. It was just really loose and really fun. And I was super, both of us were super unselfconscious about it. And when we heard it back, I was like, whoa, this is something, man. This is a thing. And we just saved it. And that's how we wound up with it. And I wanted to find a way to save it. It just felt like this full circle thing. And it's available only on the CD. It's not on the LP. So if you buy the vinyl, here's, here's, a, here's an incentive to, uh, well, if you buy the vinyl, it's, it, you know, you get a download of that song as well. So let's get the second song out there. So I had picked, uh, from that cool blue feeling 2013. The song Chicken Hawks and Jesus Freaks, a little more of a, a story song. It's got certain similarities, but, it, you know, it's a bit longer, five and a half minutes. Where are you at with this song, with this album? This was the first record that I made with Mike Kirkendall, and it was just such an unbelievably easy and positive experience recording it. It was me and Rusty and Mike, and it was totally an experiment. You know, I was like, I'm going to take a shot at this. And it just like the first day in the studio, we got like four songs. And I'd been working on this song on and off. I like I really worked on this song. I had this idea about this thing that I did when I was young, which was I did hitchhike most of the way across the United States when I was, I guess I was 18 years old. I had graduated from high school and I had a couple of older friends that hitchhiked. And I just, it was a thing that I did. And it was kind of a bonkers thing to do. I don't think people do that anymore that much. And I just kind of grew up hitchhiking everywhere. And just cause, and I just, it was just something that I did. I sort of created a story and a character around it. And I just used like the very skeleton thing of that to just to create this song. And melodically, it just really felt good to me. You know, I probably could have dropped a verse or something like that in there, but I didn't. I just stuck with it. I'm like, this is going to have a lot of detail in it. It's going to be a story song. And when I was 14 years old or however old I was, you know, I loved the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, you know. So I'm going to tell a story, too. Just a different kind of story. I rode my thumb when I was young To see what I could see Your story's yours out on the road I never felt so free You head out for the interstate You try and flag one down The hardest part of any trip Just getting out of town There's Cadillacs, Cherokees White freight liners too Flash your smile, you stand up straight, you hope one stops for you. And when you're out on the drag, you got your overnight bag, and there's no headlights as far as you can see. You watch those palm trees sway The nighttime turns to day Chicken hawks 
Jesus freaks and no one rides for free. A roughneck bound for life I am. He give me my first ride. We speed wrapped for a thousand miles until his tranny died. Then it's sun. Do you know Jesus Christ? Have you seen the light? Or do you wake up full of fear on the darkest side of night? I said I never missed a Sunday mass till the day I turned 18. And Jesus told me we were square if you know what I mean. And when you're out on the drag, you got your overnight bag, and there's no headlights as far as you can see. You watch those palm trees sway. The nighttime turns to day. Chicken heart. And no one rides for free And it's easy to get burned Get scared to close your eyes There's money spent, the money earned The simple truth, the complicated lies The tinted window, midnight creeps they hit the shoulder slow You put your bag in back You slide in front Down the road you go The parking lots The motel rooms The truck stop shower stalls I've had my fun I'm going home Before the Next night falls When you're young You don't hear anyone You're old, no one hears you Well, memories flash And stories fade And leave you wondering What was true And when you're out On the drag You got your own Before we talk about that tune, let's have our little break.
This episode is sponsored by Factor Meals, America's number one ready-to-eat meal delivery service. Throughout this holiday season, you're going to have some jam-packed days, and you need nutritious, convenient meals to keep you energized. Well, Factor, America's number one ready-to-eat meal delivery service, can help you fuel up fast for breakfast, lunch, and dinner with chef-prepared, dietitian approved ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door. You will save time, eat well, and stay on track with your healthy lifestyle while tackling all your holiday to-dos. Now, I have given Factor Meals as a gift. I set my father up for a plan that I was paying for, had him unwrap a card that said, hey, here's a bunch of free meals. They are fresh, never frozen. They're ready in just two minutes. And I sat down with him at the website to choose from the 35-plus weekly flavor-packed meals to help him choose things that he would enjoy and that meet his very stringent requirements regarding nutrition and the use of premium ingredients. And it went over great. It was a great gift, and he is continuing to use the service on his own because who would not want some very convenient food options added to their life. The kind of stuff you'd get at a fancy restaurant, creamy Parmesan chicken, artichoke and Parmesan pork chop. And of course, they have many vegetarian options, the vegetarian tamale bowl, the vegan mushroom marsala. And there are delicious dietitian approved calorie smart meals with around less than 550 calories per serving, protein plus meals with 30 grams of protein or more per serving. You can get a wellness boost with cold pressed juices, shakes and smoothies. And there are over 45 add-ons, wholesome breakfast items, lunch to go. Enjoy eating well without the hassle. Head to factormeals.com slash NEM50 and use code NEM50 to get 50% off. That's code NEM50 at factormeals.com slash NEM50 to get 50% off. If you want to learn about fascinating moments in history in the most relaxing way possible, then try the new podcast, Calm History. Each episode is narrated in a calm voice to help you relax or fall asleep. You'll learn about famous explorers, leaders, inventors, civilizations, and ancient wonders. There's even a six-part series about the Titanic. Just search your podcast player for Calm History or visit calmhistory.com. I'll put the link right in the notes to this episode. Yeah, so similar overall structure in that the drums are not taking up that much space. You've got you know prominent acoustics. This time it's the pedal steel, right? Doing them yeah, that's mainly. right. And that was uh, played by, I didn't want to play it myself for some reason. I felt like, you know, there's a thing every now and again where I felt like if I played it myself, I was going to fall into my usual licks. And I wanted, I felt like the song wanted somebody else's thing on it. And it was played by uh, Paul Brainerd, who's a well-known steel player in Portland. Just an unbelievably talented musician. It's one of those guys, it's, there's certain steel players and musicians that are just very, very good, like in a way that's super organized. And it's one of those things where I go, Paul, what was your other instrument? And it's always trumpet. It's always people, when I say trumpet, they tend to have come up through band in high school or something like that. So, and Paul, I think he's an unbelievably great pedal steel guitar player, steel guitar player, piano player, trumpet player arranger, producer, and there's a compositional quality to everything he does. And not surprisingly, he has a degree in composition. So, Yes, it sounds very well-structured, well-produced. I mean, between him and the bass that comes in later, which it's this very percussive Beach Boys kind of bass, is that just... That's Rusty Miller playing bass. And Rusty... Probably on a Fender, but it's it sounds kind of like an, an upright, isn't it? Yes, and Rusty is he's an exceptional bass player. His bass lines—he's never playing bass; he's always playing music. So 
it's a thing where he'll often play with a pick, muted Carol K style. I love the sound of that kind of bass on records where it's just, it's in its place and it's driving things rhythmically and melodically. The way Rusty plays bass is, is kind of amazing. Yeah, I want to say like the role of a rock cello, but not like actual rock cellos in ELO. That's not that. It's just, it's not holding down the bottom. It's not locking with the kick the whole time in the way that some of your other songs do. I really like the way this is structured that the verses, each verse is like three verse, that each couplet is pretty much a whole verse. So by the time you get through three of those, like that's a pretty long verse, <laughs> you know, when you- It is. And believe me, I, it's a commitment nowadays. A five minute song is a commitment in these days of immediate gratification and scrolling and, you know, clicking onto, onto a song on Spotify and clicking off the next one. But I can only do what I do. <laughs> well, I just was over there today editing one of my previous guests, Andy White, the folk singer who has a sort of travelogue like this. But it's like nine minutes long that he, that he just leans into it. It's just going to take as long as it takes. And so the fact, I, I think it's just that you, you know, started with Go to Blazes, which has a very, it's categorized as pop rock in the all music guide or whatever, even though it's, you know, has definite country stuff about it. I don't know. Are the country people still defensive about we're not pop rock? We're not folk. We're, you know, that. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not really that into categories. I mean, you know, Go to Blazes, you know, we started off one way. We ended up another way. We were to, you know, finger quotes here. We were an Americana band before it was really a genre. We were featured prominently in the third edition of No Depression magazine. We played with all those bands. We were label mates with the Bottle Rockets and the Blood Oranges and, you know, a bunch of other stuff like that. And we just, you know, we were either four years ahead of our time or 10 years behind our time. And it's just, we liked country music. We liked ACDC. <laughs> you know, we liked everything. Well, and following on what you were saying about the bass in this song, let me play a little bit at 108. This is when the chorus starts. And when you're out on the drag, you got your overnight bag, and there's no headlights. It's Just that little percussion thing that we're going to have castanets. Yeah, that's all my Kirk and Doll. And both him and Rusty are like, they know records and they know production. And it, to me, I, I love it, man. It just sounds like some Wrecking Crew stuff. I'm like, bring it on. Bring that stuff on. If I could have put a kettle drum on it there, I would have. <laughs> you know, between the verses, you got the challenge that you have so many verses and each of them ends with this descending line. So that sometimes when you do it, oh, the steel is with you. Sometimes it's the bass, but the, maybe the bass is going up. So it's like a constant variety without this thing. Each of those stanzas is so self-contained. You know, you get you put yourself out. Oh, and then it resolves in this nice way. Just you could just end the song right there <laughs> with two lines to then contrast that. Just the second half of the chorus, so that when you go to this, the nighttime turns to day. That's like your. It's a little key change there. And yeah, you, it's a barred chord. You know, it's like it's so it's one of my things where I go to the two major chord. No, no. In this case, I'm in the key of D. So yeah, I go to the two major, and it's a sound that I don't know where I got it from. But it's always tweaked my ear, and it would, so I overuse that so much. I put it anywhere I can. The fact that it's a major chord and not a minor chord changes the key. Right, and then having the maracas come in there in the middle of the line, that's a really interesting propelling it. Yeah, it just makes this whole, the chicken hawks and Jesus freaks, again, the chords there, it sounds a little off balance, and like this could keep 
circulating for a little while. Yeah, to just have that very non-traditional country element, let's say, say you know, this would not be in a really old-style 1950s. Or am I wrong about it? Am I underestimating? No, 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 it wouldn't be. But there is, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of, there's a Johnny Paycheck song off of, it's not his song. I don't know who the, I, don't know, I forget who the writer is. It might be Peanut Montgomery, which is sounds weird, but it was a, a writer that wrote for George Jones and other people. It might be him or it might be somebody else. I'll have to look it up. It's called I've Seen Better Days. And it does this thing where it goes or the song goes around in ascending fourths. So, you know, it goes from a G to a C and it just goes around in this really odd ear tweaking circle. And so, you know, it's not unheard of to have stuff like that. You know, where things collide, but it's definitely borrowed from that just comes from songwriters that have big ears, you know, that are listening to stuff outside of their own comfort zone. I'm totally into the borrowed chords thing. I'm totally into that. I don't want to sound like I'm diminishing country music. I'm perfectly aware of like Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys, the whole place where jazz and country were seen as the same thing. But I think the best writers were always listening to everything. So, you know, you get to a certain point when, you know, when music was exploding in the late 60s and early 70s, probably, you know, from the mid 60s onward, where you had these sort of sound factories that were cranking things out. You know, Motown was a factory the same way as certain studios in Nashville were factories, the same way that High Studios in Memphis was a factory, the same way that Cameo Parkway Records in Philadelphia was a factory. And you had these things that were coming out. And I think that, you know, real good songwriters were listening to everything and stealing from everything. And so, you know, you have these very sophisticated things that were floating around at that time. And I think it all just sort of influenced. Do you think about a song like Behind Closed Doors by that Charlie Rich had the had the hit the big hit on, or the most beautiful girl in the world? Those are pop songs with very sophisticated chord changes, you know, for pop music, you know, they're like, wow, the most beautiful girl in the world. What a great song that is. You know, like I love that stuff. So this one, there's a lot of movement in that chorus. Again, it's, it's a pretty long chorus as these things go. And you just do that exactly three times. And he thought about, I'm not going to move this story forward. This is a series of vignettes about hitchhiking or something. And so the chorus is just going to sort of reestablish each time this is what we're doing. It just didn't feel like I could really change it. I have to have something that's somewhat grounding in it. Since there's so many verses, you know, the verses are going someplace. The choruses had to stay static. Sure. Both this and the last song end it by let's repeat the last line three times. That's just a classic, nice way of ending songs. You do have a bridge in this one. Let's play it. To get burned, get scared, close. Your eyes, there's money spent, the money and the simple truth, complicated life. Relatively short, as sections in here go. The song needed some kind of a bridge. It just, that's all. It just needed some other movement to move it forward. It was just sort of the simplest thing that sort of worked. You know, it worked lyrically, and it didn't need to be more complicated than that. Introducing the organ there which I didn't notice if the organ sticks around for the rest of the song or if it just goes away. And that was Paul Brainerd playing that. It was just like, he got done with the pedal steel. And I was like, 
put some organ on the bridge. And he just sat down and just did it, you know? Yeah. And another one of the, you know, non-subtle drum, let's just have some, some big kicks. And then when the tambo does come in, it's again, you know, just like you're, yeah, and I think, you know, I think this is one of the songs that Mike Kirkendall is playing drums, not Rusty Miller. Mike and Rusty are very different drummers. Like Mike is pretty assertive and really gets down to it. And Rusty is, has a lighter touch. And Mike's approach on the drums on this was pretty big and broad in a way, even though, even though it's subtle, it's very assertive. Well, let's move toward, we keep referring to your previous band, Go To Blazes. You had picked out Bloody Sam from Anytime, Anywhere, 1994. Is that the third album? That is the third album, yes. Mm -hmm. Any words about where you were at with this band at this time and this song in particular, which was not primarily, right, a songwriting vehicle for you, or at least became more so as you went on? Is that that it was mostly the singer wrote and then... Me and Ted, the singer, wrote the lion's share of the songs. Ted wrote more than I did, you know, but I was well represented across the records. And we wrote together. We were, you know, very close. And he contributed things to my songs and I contributed things to his that, we, you know, we didn't always credit each other for because we didn't have to. I'll say this about Bloody Sam. I consider it the first good song I ever wrote. When I wrote it, I thought about it for a long time. You know, it's like, it's my process. It's like, ah, you know, I'm a, I was a big fan of the films of Sam Peckinpah going back to like, like, like when I was too young to see his movies. If people don't know who he is, he's an American auteur Western director famous for uh, his late sixties film, The Wild Bunch, which is an incredible, it's sort of a very, very violent, very visceral, very, masculine story of the death of the old west basically it's a classic film he also directed pat garrett and billy the kid and straw dogs and you know a number of other bring me the head of alfredo garcia which is one of my favorite films and anyway his story is fascinating i loved his movies i thought he'd make an interesting subject for a song uh, he was known as bloody sam so there's a title right there i had a title I read a biography about him and then I just sort of turned it into a song and he's in it and Warren Oates is in it and Jason Robards is in it. And I just made it into a thing and it, it became this sort of template for me to write these songs about characters.
this makes sense that you're referring to episodes in a pre-existing story because just looking at this in isolation, I could not figure out what is actually going on from, I mean, I, the changes in moods are clear. Like it works as a song, but in terms of like, why are they mad at him at the end? Like what, <laughs> who's talking? See, I, you have to kind of know, <laughs> you have to kind of know a little bit about Sam Peckinpah for it to make sort of linear sense and stuff like that. It's a little inside baseball, but that's my thing. I don't know. <laughs> and I wanted to capture a mood. I wrote it like so many songs that I've written, you know, sitting on the edge of my bed with an acoustic guitar, coming up with a riff to hang a bunch of words on. And the way it came out, you know, this is our third solo record. It was our first for a bigger label. We were, this came out on a label called Eastside Digital, which was a sister label, a, a subsidiary of a label called Ryko Disc, which was kind of a big indie at the time. And this was produced by, the song was produced by Eric Amble. And Eric, he was the original guitar player in Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. And then he had been in a band called the Dell Lords. After the Dell Lords, he went on to a five-year stint with Steve Earle and the Dukes. But, you know, during this time, Eric was really, really working on being a producer. And he was very, very assertive in the studio. And he really had an aesthetic and an idea of the way things should get played. And we really gave ourselves over to that. And the results spoke for themselves on this record. It just like, it was his idea to have Joe Flood play the violin on it, on the track. And, and it was, I'm not even sure that that was an overdub. He might've played that. We cut as live as we could in the studio, you know? So he was just isolated in a, in a room and we just went for it. Sure. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. The whole, the fact that the end of the song is so long with the, instrumental and it's not really a solo like he his volume does not come up substantially it's just he's already been kind of sawing in the background and he just does more of that and then i guess we get a little more of you were playing the acoustic on this then no i'm playing an acoustic on it so eric played like he did do an overdub on the acoustic uh, you know doing those sort of a minor filigrees it's very static at the end you know it's just the riff over and over fading in a long fade out and eric was just better at playing over a single static chord change than i was and i also was just like yeah whatever you're gonna do do it make it better i can't remember if i was playing it i guess i was playing the electric guitar on the song and it didn't want a solo it wanted this other stuff and Joe Flood, I should mention, who plays on this record, who plays the violin and then I think he plays a mandolin on something else and might overdub acoustic guitar. Joe had a very, very, has a very, very, very specific skill set. He had a long career as a, you know, before he playing on the street in France, busking when you could make a living doing that. And Joe just had this, he just knew hundreds of songs and could play anything. And just very loose and in the moment. And you could just sort of turn him loose. And it was never show-offy. It was always the thing. And Joe, is an, he's an, also an exceptional songwriter who's had, you know, LeVon Helm covered him and other people covered him. And Joe's solo records are great. So he's like a band guy and a multi-instrumentalist that could sit exactly in a band. And so he was, he was a great addition to the two records, the three records that we had him play on. All right. So I feel like anything else I ask about the production in terms of like, what's with the maraca thing, the cocaine on a switchblade. Let's introduce little maracas after every other thing. That was probably just his. That was, that was just Eric's thing, man. At this point, honestly, 
So this is a long time ago. And, and having somebody who was very assertive in the studio, you know, with production, we were like, okay, cool. <laughs> you know, that's cool. But you'd already you know? had this as a live tune before that, right? So is that not much? No. I was mean, that normally for the previous albums? Was it sort of these, we've been touring with these or, you know, we've been playing with these for a while and we can just pretty much do them live and then, you know, minimal. Some of the songs on this record were, we had been playing, but we really did a lot of pre-production with Eric. There was like a whole thing where like he got together with us, with Ted and I as songwriters and we would work things out on acoustic guitar and then we'd have a pre-production session with the band. And we figured out what we were getting. We knew what we were going to do when we got into the studio, but these were not a bunch of super road tested songs. No, I didn't look whether uh, was it to the point that Eric got co-writing credit on any of this stuff on this record. There's a couple of co-writes. There's like two songs I think have co-writes on this. record. Okay. So they were so unformed when you took them into pre-production or were you even starting from scratch with him? No, 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 no. It'd be like, there was two songs, I think there's two songs on this record that I don't have a copy in front of me, but I think there's two songs that he has co-writes on because like, he was like, this needs a bridge. Let's do it right now. And him and Ted came up with something or, so he got, yeah, he got credit for sure. Say a word, get a third. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Any thoughts about, you know, just to hit a little more on your shifting to new labels. Was this when No Depression, was this like the breakout record? Okay. So it was before that. Yeah, it was. This is a, like, a, it was sort of a little bit before that. I mean, it was a thing. It was, an, it was, it was going on, you know, it was a thing, but it was, I guess maybe concurrently, it was, it's a long time ago, but I just remember that we, the record wasn't out yet and we played at South by Southwest and that would have been 1994. I just remember playing a, a showcase at the Continental Club and it was Go to Blazes, the Bottle Rockets, Ben Vaughn, Bill Lloyd from Foster and Lloyd. And then Radney Foster sort of ended the night. So it was like this stuff was like cooking at that point. And it was a label showcase with Eastside Digital and Barnon Records from Hoboken, New Jersey. And it was heady stuff for us. It was very heady stuff for us. At what point, I mean, was it just because you moved across the country that you needed to become the lead singer or were you already sort of, was this gestating throughout the 90s? No, you know, just like the Cliff Notes version of is it Go to Blazes broke up. I was really at a loose end. We broke up amicably. We stayed friends. There was no big thing. It was just people needed to get on with their lives. I, being the arrested adolescent that I am, didn't need to get on with my life. I moved across the country for, you know, because I was pursuing a love affair, this woman who became my wife. And also I felt like I needed to get out of Philadelphia. And I knew that if I wanted to continue as a musician, I had to find a way to sing my own songs. I didn't sing in Go to Blazes. I didn't open my mouth. I didn't start singing as a lead singer until I moved to San Francisco. I was well into my 30s. And being in Go to Blazes with somebody who was such a good singer, um, it was an intimidating thing. It didn't come naturally to me. And it took me a long time to sort of get it together. But I knew that I wanted to have a vehicle for my own stuff and not be dependent on somebody else. To So that's how I did it. And I didn't feel like I could do it in Philadelphia where I had... I just didn't feel like I wanted to see people people to see me growing up in public in that way. I went to San Francisco and did it out here and it was easier. Yeah. And you have a number of different sort of distinct registers, in term, you know, like the Waylon Jennings song that we started off with. 
where you're doing this thing. Yeah, I, was, country. I, was doing, I was doing, I was sort of doing whaling. <laughs> and, and that was, you know, that's almost 15 years ago. I'm a much better singer now, 15 years later. I'm much more comfortable with my voice. You know, I know what it is or what I can do with it. And I was, you know, like the, and I was just sort of, I was just sort of doing whaling, you know. Well, let's use this to somehow introduce the last thing that I had selected that I always look for, for a closing song whatever's the most catchy thing that jumps out at me. And, and there are, you know, a number of choices. Desperate would have been a, a fine choice for this, but Etch-A-Sketch from the previous full album, Show Business Baby, 2017. I'm very, very, very fond of this song. I, I love playing it. I feel like I hit on something. It's a very different kind of record. When I made Show Business Baby was, was you know, it was all about, it's a pure genre exercise. I'm, I'm super into like the genre of music called pub rock, you know, sort of late seventies thing from England. And there was an American sort of, you know, the biggest pub rock band was probably um, rock pile featuring Dave Edmonds and Nick Lowe. They were the, probably the, the most famous and, and their American counterpart might've been like NRBQ. Cause you know, they just like very sort of grounded by genre, but not grounded by genre and you know, like fantastic playing and sort of very melodic, but very hard driving. And, you know, I was super into that and I made show business baby because I wasn't, you know, it's like sort of trapped in my own singer songwriter ghetto. And I wanted to be able to say baby as many times as I could in a song unselfconsciously. I think I say <laughs> it on that record. I think I did a count. The word baby comes up 155 times on that record. So that's pretty good. I almost hit something. You know, I had a friend who's like sort of drank a lot. And I was like, man, he's like a, I was saying to this friend of mine, I was like, I was like, I mean, you'd be playing with him and, and he'd be fine in rehearsal. And then it's like, and, and then it's and like at the gig, it's like, he's like an Etch-A-Sketch. Like somebody shook him and it just, everything just went away and he just can't. And, and he was like, you should turn that into a song. And I went home and I sat down at the kitchen table and I turned it into a song. Very seldom does one hear of a challenge like that, that it actually results in a song as opposed to, why are you suggesting songs name to me? <laughs> I can think of my own. It worked, man. All of a sudden I hit on it. I was like, you know, oh yeah, you know, etch a sketch, shaking it. Yeah, that works, man. That works. And I just like I was like a dog with a bone. Before we say goodbye, any any ever are you already working on the next thing? Is there another pile of songs? Or are you kind of done for the there's moment? A, there's a half finished pile of songs. There always is, you know, and eventually I'll eventually I'll start tackling them, you know. So to answer your question, yes. Sure. Well, if there's always, are, does that mean some of these are from 20 years ago or, or is it always a, a fairly new? Uh, you know, some of them are old. Some of them are from last week. You know, there's just a, I just have a pile of, you know, some things are almost complete. Some things are just ideas. You know, I'm a great procrastinator. And, and when it comes time to get down to work, then I just sort of get down to work on it. I mean, do you see any point if you, you know, felt like, how would I do Bloody Sam now or something, you know, take something that's that old from your catalog? Probably not. No, probably not. I mean, I still play it live. It works really well live, but I, I probably wouldn't recut it. No, I, so I'm, you know, trying, you know, onwards, onwards and upwards. Sure, hopefully. sure. I tend to have on every album, at least one thing is like, this riff has been with me since 1991 and I never made it into a song. Oh yeah, that is definitely a thing with me. The yes. riffs that won't leave you alone. Like I, I tried to put this away. <laughs> Yeah, you can't, you know, you keep coming back to it. And there's a bunch, you know, I have a bunch of songs like that, you know, that went up on every record. There's always something like, it's just, it won't go away. And, I, and then finally you find your way, you find your way into turning it into like, 
you find your way into turning it into a song. Sure. And it's a, a lot of times it's unlikely. It's like, oh, I certainly was not thinking that this would be a thing. Or I have ones that I, I did turn it into something back then, but I hated it even then. And now, <laughs> but I still like the riff and I, you know, just throw away the rest. Also, that's <laughs> certainly, that's a, certainly a thing as well. Like, you know, you have a riff that's so that you feel so strongly about that you, you know, jam it into a song and you're like, yeah, this song's not really very good, but the riff that can be repurposed. Yeah. So for sure. All right. Well, good luck with the next record. Good luck with this record. Thanks so much for chatting. It was wonderful to go this deep on stuff. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm looking forward to, to listening back. Right through 
Thanks so much to Tom. Really fun talking to him. You can hear his music at tomhaymanmusic.net. You can look him up on Bandcamp. You can look him up on the streaming services or look up Go to Blazes on the streaming services. I will have some links to some of the projects that he guested on at the blog post corresponding to this episode at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. I hope you are subscribed directly to the Nakedly Examined Music feed if you happen to be listening to this on the Partially Examined Life feed or elsewhere. NakedlyExaminedMusic.com has many links to do that. If you like to listen on Spotify, well, Spotify now partners with Patreon. So if you go support the project for a very, very low per episode cost at Patreon.com slash NakedlyExaminedMusic, not only do you get my episode notes with the lyrics and the structures and all the things I didn't get around to saying, but you'll get a feed that is entirely free of ads, a little bit of bonus content, and you will know that you are helping this show to continue existing. I have two episodes in the can after this, the next one being with Reckless Eric, best known for his often covered cult hit, Whole Wide World. And I just spoke to Jason Narducci, who, in addition to being a Bob Mould's longtime bass player, fronts his own band called Split Single and was the musical partner of one of my previous guests, Allison Chesley, a.k.a. Helen Money, where she played cello against his guitaring and songwriting in a band called Verbo in the early 90s. Please come back to listen to those episodes and dive into the vast catalog of previous interviews. You'll definitely find some names you know and many more names you don't know, but you should know. We had some delays in getting this episode out, so apologies to Tom for that. And for you, the listeners, I blame my editor. Hope you're doing well. Till next time. Keep on musicin'. This is Mark Linsmeyer signing off. <laughs>